Let's go ahead and take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, those that are familiar with the context of 1 Corinthians 5 are thinking, wow, that's an interesting passage to decide to preach on this morning. But the truth is, folks, we need to be reminded your sin affects others. In our society today, we have a serious problem of calling right wrong and wrong right. One of the mainline denominations is splitting right now, or has been over the last several months, because of some saying, no, the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong, and homosexual preachers are not to be in the pulpit, and because some are taking a stand for biblical truth, they're being separated from their denomination. Now, folks, let me tell you something. I would rather be biblically right than to please man, wouldn't you? But sin is still sin. Sin is destructive, and it not only affects the sinner, but affects those around. But many churches today are celebrating their tolerance and acceptance. That is nothing to celebrate. Tolerating sin in the church will only destroy the church. I promise you it will. It'll destroy it from within. There used to be a day when fornication was frowned upon, but today this shacking up nonsense has become the norm. There used to be a day adultery was slanderous, but it's such commonplace today. There used to be a day when we called sin, sin, and we stood for right. But you know, this issue is not new. Because here Paul is writing the church at Corinth because they are boasting in their tolerance of sin that is known to be going on in the church. And Paul says, you're not right. That's not the way we're supposed to handle it. So how are we supposed to handle then, if there's open sin, blatant sin in the church, how are we supposed to handle that? We serve a holy God who has called us to a life of separation from sin. And as a church body, we're to hold each other accountable. Paul used the illustration of leaven or yeast. So nothing as good as homemade bread, right? Mm. But when you make your bread, you take not tons of yeast, but just a little bit of yeast, and you knead that into that dough, and then you let it, what? Rise. But not just a small section of the dough rises. All of it does. And so what Paul is saying is it doesn't take much to affect the entire body. Because are we not a body of believers? Okay, when you stub your little toe, your whole body cries for your little toe, does it not? In languages you never thought possible when you stubbed that toe in the middle of the night, right? When I had, a couple years ago, my first bout with diverticulitis, my bowels obviously were hurting, but my whole body ached because of it. I was doubled over in pain. So it is with a body. If one is not right, it affects all. A body of believers. Folks, we have in our society belittled church to where it's just some kind of social club, social organization. Let me tell you something. Church membership is important because as part of being a member of Freedom Baptist Church, I am held accountable 
to, learn, to serve a holy living God and every other member of the body has the responsibility of holding me accountable to it. That's how it's supposed to work. So when a brother or sister approaches you and says, by the way, you know, I see this happening and can we pray about the matter? Or can, can I help you with the matter? Can I show you how God taught me in this matter? Take it the way it's intended because that takes courage, does it not, to approach somebody else and to try to be a help to them? And so in this passage, the church at Corinth is celebrating, if you will, the fact that they're allowing this sin to continue instead of dealing with it according to the word of God. So we're going to read all 13 verses of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And if you are physically able, if you would please stand with me and honor the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. For I verily is absent in body, but present in spirit, and have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out now, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to accompany with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, nor extortioners, or idolaters. For then you must needs go out of the world. For now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or extortioner with such an one not know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Four points I want us to observe this morning. First of all, we'll see the problem explained in verses 1 and 2. The problem explained in verses 1 and 2. Then secondly, we'll see the punishment that was to be meted out in verses 3 through 5. Thirdly, the purity of the church in verses 6 through 8. And then the proper, ap proper application of separation in verses 9 through 13. I know I read through those quickly, but I will cover them again as we go through the message. But you and I need to realize a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Your sin affects others. Father, again, pray that you give us wisdom now as we come to your word. Teach us. And Lord, if one of us is, does have a sin in our hearts, that we confess it today. And again, if there's one that does not know Christ as Savior, that today be their day of salvation. And we'll be careful to give the praise and glory for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul says, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Such fornication is not named among the Gentiles. One should have his father's wife. So this nameless man is committing incest, not with his mother, but his stepmother is what is commonly believed in this passage. It, it, he's, but he's still in an incestuous relationship. Now, folks, that's not even recognized in Roman law. It's not recognized as 
to be appropriate, Paul says, even by the Gentiles, yet this church is doing absolutely nothing about it. And it's not like it's a secret. It's not like nobody knows about it. Paul says it's commonly reported that this is happening in your church and you're doing nothing about it because the church is too busy saying, look how tolerant we are. Look how accepting we are. Yeah, this man, you know, we know he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, but hey, isn't that the way society is? Is that not how we excuse today? Well, we know this young couple shacking up, but so is everybody else. Well, when does everybody else's sin make my sin or sin of one that I love or am accountable for right? It doesn't. And folks, we need to understand, and we'll get more into this later in the message, the purity of the church matters to Jesus Christ. This is his church. This is his bride. And this bride needs to stay pure for its bridegroom. And when we allow those type of things to continue without being checked, we are disobeying a holy God and we're allowing impurity into the church. Folks, I don't preach this to be harsh. I don't preach this to be rough. I preach this because this is biblical truth, and this is why God has called us as an assembly to help hold one another accountable so that we can serve our holy Savior. Amen? So here the church is bragging, and the fact that, yeah, we know this is going on, but we're okay with this. God expects obedience. I wish parents would apply that in their home. And teach how obedience matters. I remember as a child singing a song, Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe, right? And then we'd sing it and we'd spell it O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Okay, I'm not going to sing anymore. We'll stop right there. The commands of God are not grievous. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. You know, when you go to work, your employer actually has an expectation of you to do the task that they assign to you in a timely manner. And we live in a society that's like, yeah, that's not, that's an unreasonable expectation. No, it's not. Obedience matters. I remember when I was in uh, boot camp up in Great Lakes, they had this big facility where they taught us firefighting and damage control. Because... Fires on board ship are not a good thing. Fires anywhere are not a good thing, especially when it's a board ship, right? And so we had to learn uh, how to fight a Class Alpha, Class Bravo, and Class Charlie fire. Now, it's been many years. One of those three is the fuel fire, okay? And so they had this door, not a hatch, because it was a door, okay? But it was like like a ship's door, and you were to approach the door but you were not supposed to step into the compartment because on the other side of the compartment was a active fuel fire. And you were supposed to put down the light water, which now they find causes problem. But anyhow, put down the light water on the, on the fuel fire and to put the fire out. So there are two fire teams. I was a nozzleman and this other recruit is a nozzleman. And we approach the fire and he takes and steps over the knee knocker into the compartment which puts him now in the fire. This chief, who was our instructor, comes over, grabs him, turns off the hose, and I see this recruit go flying across the room. And the chief then addressed him down 
because of his lack of listening to instructions. He says, you realize you just stepped into a live fuel fire and it could have caught on your trousers and you would have been in flames just like that. You see, listening to the details was important. By the way, I think that was the whole purpose of boot camp was teaching you how to listen to details and obeying without question. But may I say, living the Christian life, the details are important. And obeying God in the details is important. Because just as in a situation like that, it really could be a matter of life and death. So obeying God, now I am glad as a Christian that it doesn't mean eternal death and hell, but it can be a matter of life and death, can it not? Because the wages of sin is still death, and those that choose to live a life of sin is still going to age you faster, and physical death may come sooner than you expected. Is that not a true statement? God expects obedience. But Paul says it was commonly reported. You know, the unfortunate thing is bad news spreads faster than good news. But we need to remember that everywhere I go and everything I do, I am not just representing Freedom Baptist Church. More importantly, I'm representing Jesus Christ. I was talking to somebody recently, and they were saying about no matter where they are or what they do, and I don't even remember who it was or what the job was, but basically they're that all the time. I said, I fully understand. I said, it doesn't matter. I am a pastor 24-7. But more importantly, I'm a Christian 24-7. And so it doesn't matter whether I'm alone at home or I'm in the middle of a crowd, I still need to realize God is still watching. I'm still accountable to a holy God. Amen? But Paul says in verse 2, you're puffed up. The idea has the idea of being arrogant. They had not dealt with the sin, and they were dealing with it in an arrogant way. May I say, when you approach those who are trying to defend sin in the church and defend sin in, the, in, in Christianity, many times have a very, a very arrogant attitude in the way they're defending it and look down upon you. How dare you be so old-fashioned? How dare you be so critical? How dare you just want to judge? No, it's not me judging. It's what the scriptures say. God has already said it's wrong. And you try to approach some people with a very humble attitude, and all you get is a lot of arrogance back. Well, that's what Paul is saying. You're being arrogant in the way you're handling this. This mainline denomination that I said is splitting. I think it's sad that it's the conservatives holding on to the Word of God to have to go form a new denomination. It should be those that wanted to change to have to go form a new denomination, not the ones that wanted to stay the same. But arrogance won't let them. Do you follow what I'm saying? But Paul says in verse 2, you're puffed up and, rather, and have not rather mourned. Now that's interesting because there should have been heartbreak over it. But there was no heartbreak. Eh, they're doing their own thing. What they do in the bedroom doesn't bother me. I'm not going to bother them. They're not going to bother me instead of realizing the destruction that is not just causing these two who are in sin, but truthfully to the entire body and to the name of Christ. Because don't think that unlike today, that in Paul's day, 
What do you think the lost is doing? Oh, yeah, those Christian church. Yeah, yeah, that Corinth church. You know, they claim they follow that Jesus. They claim that they're all holy. Did you hear what that guy's doing? How horrible that is to the testimony of Christ, is it not? Do we not have the same thing happen in churches today? We need to learn to mourn over sin. You know, when you all who are members here became members, you were asked to read our doctrinal statement and our covenant. And recently, when we did our annual church administration meeting and voted on our budget, we read the church covenant to one another again. Folks, I believe that's important because it's helping us understand that when we became members of this church, part of the covenant is we are expected to act like Christians and we're expecting each other to act like Christians. I don't think that's a high expectation. Well, it is a high expectation, but I don't think it's an unreasonable expectation. How's that? But we've lost the shock of sin. Our society has become so desensitized to sin that we're no longer weeping over it. And let me tell you something. This is one of the tactics Satan is using. Because if you haven't been awake and haven't noticed that every single TV show, program, commercials, Hallmark and, and Disney and all the rest, all of a sudden have the LGBTQ crowd in every single one of the movies. Why? Because they need to make you think it's normal. They need to put it in front of you over and over and over and over again until you become desensitized to it and you no longer are disgusted by it, but it's, eh, I've seen that before. I don't like it, but it's just the way it is. That's exactly what they're trying to get you to. And you and I need to turn the filth off because you and I need to understand it is exactly what it is. It is filth, it is wickedness, and it is only going to lead to destruction. And I don't need to become desensitized to the sin that is in this world as we already have toward adultery and fornication. We've got awfully quiet in here. But why should we mourn? Sin brings the chastisement of God. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye are without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, if we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and gave them reverence, shall, not, shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our own profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, as the writer of Hebrews is writing this, he's encouraging Christians in the fact that a loving father that we have in God will chasten us as his children. And that is a comfort. However, why does he have to chasten us? Well, because we sin. So doesn't it make sense that if I am not sinning, I won't have to experience the chastening hand of God, right? So one reason why we should mourn over sin is because, you know, I know what the chastening hand of God is like. And let me tell you something, it's not pleasant. And do I want to see you having to go through that chastisement? I would rather you obey God and not have to go through that chastisement. 
So should that not bring tears to my eyes when a fellow brother or sister in Christ refuses to get right with God, knowing that God is going to chastise them? Yes, it should. All right, another reason why we should mourn over sin. Because our sin affects others. How about the Old Testament example of Achan? When Joshua comes into the promised land, God gives him instruction, the first city you're going to take is Jericho. And we all know about the battle of Jericho. But with the instruction that was given specifically to Israel when they came to Jericho is all the spoils belong unto God, teaching them the principle the first fruits belong unto God. Well, we all remember the account that Achan gets in there and he sees a Babylonian garment and he sees a wedge of gold and he says, I want those. He took those. He hid them in his tent. And then Israel proceeds to go to little Ai. And it's such a small town. Joshua says, you know, we really don't need to send a whole army. We just send a few thousand troops up there. 36 men die that day because God was not with them. They lost the battle of Ai. Now Joshua is on his face, and he's praying to God, and God says, get off your face, Joshua. There's sin in the camp. You need to go find it out. And so Joshua brings Israel and says, we got to find this sin in the camp. No confession from Ai, or from uh, uh, Achan. And so we go tribe by tribe, and he picks out his tribe, and then they go family by family, and then they keep going down until they eventually get to Achan, who never confessed this whole time as it's getting, the group's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But understand, the Bible tells us that they went and they fetched out of his tent the garment and the wedge of gold. And when he was killed, it was he, his family, his cattle. Now remember we talked the other week about individual accountability. I think his family is in on it because they were killed with it. Okay, God is a just God. But the point being, all his cattle, all that he had, that means even that wedge of gold, even that Babylonian garment, were buried under a heap of stones. His sin affected not just his family, but 36 other families who lost their soldier that day at the Battle of Ai. And may I say the entire nation, the embarrassment of the defeat of Ai. Don't think your sin doesn't affect others. And may I say the same thing happens in a local church. You know, God can remove his hand of blessing from a local church if the church is harboring sin. Do you believe that? I want the hand of God's blessing on Freedom Baptist Church, don't you? Then I think it's important we cover a message like this that each of us examine and make sure I'm not the one hindering God's blessing on this church. It's time for an honest evaluation. Is there sin in my life that I'm harboring? Now, we look at this guy and we say, that's a wicked thing he's doing. But you know, God considers gossip a wicked thing. God considers laziness a wicked thing. God considers pride a wicked thing. You see, we need to keep walking with Christ. We need to be changing more in his image day by day. And we need to be the ones that not living in sin, not harboring sin, not trying to dwell there, but living in Jesus Christ. Here's another reason. Sin will hinder your prayers. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, referring to the wife, according to knowledge, given honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of life. Now get this, that your prayers be not hindered. So, what is God teaching us there in Peter? 
that if my relationship with Susan is not where it needs to be, if I am not dwelling with her according to knowledge, if I'm fighting and, 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 and have a disorganized home, that God says, that could hinder my prayers. Why? Because of sin in my life. Another passage puts it this way. In Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I'm holding on to sin in my life, that means God doesn't have to listen to my prayers. That's what he said. Is that not what he said? Another reason why we should mourn over sin is sin breaks fellowship. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And that's probably most important is when I am not living for God, when I'm living in sin, when I am continuing a habitual pattern of sin, it's breaking fellowship with God. So let's look next at the punishment, number two, and we'll move through the rest of these points relatively quickly. There should have been a removal from the church. Verse three, for verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, we have judged already as though we're present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver one unto, unto, unto Satan for the destruction of flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, hold your place here in 1 Corinthians, and I know this is familiar, but let's go back and look at it real quickly in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. As Jesus was here on earth, he's given instructions to his disciples of this church that is to be established and how the church is to operate. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. Matthew 18, 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, then tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So, Here's the principles laid down by Jesus himself for how church discipline is to operate. Okay? We'll pick on Rich today. I have realized something in Rich's life is not right. It's a sin against God. And I approach Rich and I say, Rich, I love you as a brother, but there's this area of your life and you need to get this right before God. And, and, and Rich says, you know what, Pastor? Go fly a kite. I say, all right. So I grabbed John. Now, maybe John and Charlie, but not more than that. Okay? One or two. And now we as a group go to Rich, and we say, Rich, we know that this is happening in your life, and this is a sin against the holy God, and we love you, brother, and we want you reconciled to God. And Rich says, all three of you go fly a kite. Okay? Now we bring Rich before the church, and the church is now where of this sin in Rich's life. And Rich tells the whole church, go fly a kite. And we tell him, brother, we love you, but until you're ready to repent, you will no longer fellowship with this body of believers. We're not going to be in close fellowship with you anymore. But when you are ready to reconcile, we will receive you with open arms. And by the way, at any moment, and during that process, he were to repent and he were to be reconciled, we would stop the process right there. Church discipline is handled. Okay? Now, in this case, 
with the arrogance of this man, what he's doing, the church already knows. I don't think Paul is trying to skip these steps. First of all, he's trying to correct the church on their end of it. They're doing it wrong, okay? Anyhow, the point being is they should have followed this process, and now the man's kicked out of the church. Now, for time's sake, we're not going to turn to 2 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul has to address the church again because it talks about this man repenting, but the church is still stiff-arming him, saying, no, we're not going to take you back in. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to work because what is the goal always, always, always of church discipline is reconciliation. And so Paul has to tell the Corinthians, no, 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 now you're doing it wrong again. He's repented. He's stopped what he's doing. He's confessed it. Now you need to take him back in as a brother. Okay, so let's use Rich. Rich again, now we've kicked him out of the church. But now we go a year, two years. Rich comes back and says, you know what, church? I was wrong. I sinned before holy God. You know what we do? Kill the fatted calf. Our brothers come home, right? That's what we do. And then we don't continue to hold it against his head forever. You remember that time? We don't. It's done. It's over. You put it behind you. That's how church discipline is supposed to work. I've been accused of not practicing church discipline here at Freedom Baptist Church. But done properly, you don't know if step one has been done. Nobody but that individual and myself know. Or may I say, perhaps John went to Rich first. Do you realize that was church discipline, but nobody else knew about it? Right? So to say we've never practiced it is pretty foolish. The church at Corinth was not following this. Now, while the goal is always reconciliation, the reason is always church purity. The reason why we have church discipline is because the purity of the church matters. And a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And so we can't allow it to continue. We must deal with it. Now, Paul says, verse 5, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord. The destruction of the flesh. It would be better for the flesh to be destroyed than the continued destruction of the testimony of Christ. Now, 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 talk about a sin unto death. And again, I don't want to get lost in the weeds this morning, but I think it's important you understand. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I say, I do not say that he, he shall pray for it. Now, I believe... What the scripture's teaching of this sin unto death is that it is possible for a Christian to sin against God. Let's, let's go back to the 1 Corinthians 5. Let's assume this man never repented, but he continued to defy God. And he says, God, I don't care what the church says. I don't care what your word says. I'm going to do what I want to do. I believe a sin unto death is a time when God says, okay, I've chastened you. I've tried to get you corrected. You're not listening. Your next punishment is to come home early. In other words, they die sooner than they should have, hence the sin unto death. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know when that is. I'm not to pray for it for somebody. What I'm to do is to try to reconcile. You understand again why the reconciliation is important. 
Because do I want a brother or sister to continue living in such sin that the chastisement gets to a point where God says, I'm going to cut your life off? No, I don't. Do you want that for a brother or sister in Christ? No, you shouldn't. But I believe this is what the Bible is teaching. And so there again, while you, we may have to separate from somebody, and that's what the Church of Corinth did, they should be praying for the reconciliation of this individual. Now, in their case, when the person did repent, they didn't take them back, as I already said, and should have. By the way, my wife and I years ago were in a church where a man had been disciplined out of the church for an act he did. While we were there, he came into service one night. It was interesting to watch the responses. My wife and I had no clue who he was, but obviously some there did. Some were very excited to see him, others not so excited to see him. But during the service, he got the pastor's attention. He said, Pastor, I need to confess to this church. He said, I sinned before this church. I sinned before a holy God. He said, what I did was wicked and evil. He says, and God has shown me, and I'm sorry for what I've done. And I'm asking this church's forgiveness. Dr. Child sitting in the back row jumps up, and he's the one that said, kill the fatted calf, my son has come home. And the church voted him back into membership because he had repented for what he had done. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. That's how it's supposed to work. Verses 6 through 8. Again, the reason for church discipline is to maintain purity. Because sin spreads fast and is very destructive. Just as a little leaven will spread through all the dough and cause it all to rise, so sin spreads. And then the illustration given, the Old Testament, how the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to purge out all the leaven out of their house, and they were to eat the unleavened bread. Again, that leavening being a picture of sin. So you and I need to get rid of the sin that is in our lives. You and I need not the glory in sin, but rather glory in Jesus Christ. Now that brings me to my last point. Yes, that one was very short. The proper application of separation. Verse 9, so the point so far, the problem. Point number 2, the punishment. Point number 3, the purity of the church. Point number 4, the proper application of separation. Paul writes in verse 9, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, nor extortioners, or idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. I know the Bible teaches us to live wholly separated lives unto God. I know the Bible teaches us to separate from sin. But here's what I have learned, and this passage makes it crystal clear. Sometimes I believe Christians have misapplied this. You see, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. Jesus said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I uh, speak in the world, that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shalt keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You see, we're to separate from sin, but it doesn't mean we separate ourselves from lost sinners. And herein I find an improper application of separation that Christians isolate themselves from the lost world. Well, Paul even says, if I'm going to isolate from all fornicators and idolaters and all this, then I have to leave this world. They're here. And that's not what the Bible teaches. 
So Paul then continues. Well, let me add this to that thought. How can we witness to the lost if we totally avoid them? In just a few chapters from here, in chapter 10, Paul writes, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you are disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Now, I've heard some say, you should not have that kind of fellowship with an unbeliever. If they invite you over to the house, find an excuse not to go over to their home. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, if those that are without, without what? Without Christ. That would be the lost. Invite you over, and you decide to go. If they put meat before you, don't ask if it was offered to idols for conscience sake. Just eat it and be thankful. That is the context of what he's saying. But you know what that tells me? It's okay to go to a lost person's home and eat. It's okay to be around lost people. Because how am I ever going to show them the love of Christ? How am I ever going to show them a difference if I never associate with them? Okay? Now, I do believe this. When it comes time for close fellowship, you are my brothers and sisters. This is where I get close fellowship. I don't go to the world for fellowship because they don't understand the spiritual things. But I can go to them to be a witness to them, right? Okay. So that whole concept or that whole teaching of when we're separating from sin means if they're doing some wicked thing, never talk to them. And I believe that is where this whole idea that I see some Christians, oh, they're homosexual, I'm never going to give them the gospel, comes from. Because I'm ashamed if I get seen with them. Well, I am thankful my Savior was not ashamed to be seen with sinners, aren't you? And if he wasn't ashamed to be seen with sinners, neither should I. Now, this does not mean that we participate in the sin. Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 12, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Okay? So, yes, I'm to maintain my testimony. I don't laugh at their filthy jokes. I don't participate in their wickedness. But it doesn't mean that I can't associate with them. But Paul then makes it crystal clear, verse 11, But now I have written unto you that ye keep not company with any man that is called a brother. That's those that claim to be a Christian, right? That's who we call brother. Be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or railer or drunkard or extortioner with such a one not to eat. You know who I break fellowship off with? If you're a brother and you're going to continue to live like the world, that's who I'm not to fellowship with. That's what that verse is saying. You know why? Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're supposed to be encouraging each other and building up the love and good works. But if you're going to live that way, and I'm supposed to get my close fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, we always think, well, I'm going to go to them and I'm going to build them up. You know what typically happens? You get tore down. Now, I'm not saying if you pass, let's suppose we had kick Rich out. Rich, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad we're not kicking you out. If I pass Rich in the street, doesn't mean I can't say hi. But if Rich says, let's go to lunch, unless he's ready to confess, I'm sorry, we can't. We separate from our brothers living in sin. Again, why? Because of the purity of the church. He claims to be a brother, and he's not living Christ-like. He's not exemplifying a Christian life. He's living in a wicked manner. And the fact that close association with such a one will bring me down. And, and I understand many in the world are like, that just seems so harsh. Listen, folks, if my Savior takes the purity 
of his church that serious, then I need to take the purity of his church that serious. Don't you believe so? Because a brother or sister in Christ should know better, but they're refusing to follow God. So, again, we went through the process. means I approached him one-on-one. I took two or three witnesses, one or two witnesses. There's two or three of us talking to him. He came before the entire church, and he still refused to repent. He has shown a heart attitude that means we don't need to associate with him until his attitude changes. Do you follow? Folks, this message this morning I know is a harder message. But the truth is, it goes back to the title of the message and the premise of the message, which is, your sin affects others. Because if we were ever, as a church, had to go to such a measure of actually removing somebody from membership, which, praise God, in the 14 years I've been here, we've never had to go that far with church discipline. It's always been taken care of at step one or two. And yes, I have had to go to step two already. And that already was nerve-wracking enough. May I say, that sin didn't affect just the individual involved, but having to confront it, I was affected by it. Having to bring somebody else into it to help confront it, it affected all of us. How can it not? But more important than affecting the other brothers and sisters in Christ, do you want to shame the holy name of Jesus Christ? So Christian, maybe God this morning has shown the light in your life. And we're not talking some grotesque sin like this man having an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. But we need to understand God sees all sin as grotesque. And if there's a sin in your life that you've been harboring, and maybe nobody else even knows, how about today? Confess that sin before a holy God and get that matter settled with him. You know, I think it's proper once in a while to do as David, examine me, Lord, and see if there be any sinful, sinful way in me. Because I know I don't want to be the Achan in the camp. I don't want to be the one that holds back God's blessing. Do you? So let's examine our hearts today. Because, you know, before you even have to start the whole process of church discipline, it's each of us following Christ and walking with him, then we would not have the problem to ever have to start in the first place. That's a real simple fix, isn't it? All of us examining ourselves and making sure I am walking with Christ as I ought to be, that I am living for him. So in this letter, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, which, by the way, is a letter full of correction. He shows them a problem they have of rejoicing in sin instead of correcting sin. By the way, I keep mentioning this denomination that has split recently. And while there's problems in in many of those churches, I think it's proper we pray because you do realize some of them are brothers and sisters in Christ. And those that have taken a stand and said, no, this is what the Bible says. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what you say. We're going to follow what God has said. Are you praying for them? Because they're doing the right thing. But it shows us the problem that this sin was rejoicing, or this church rather, was rejoicing in sin rather than correcting sin. It shows us the proper way in which to handle such a case for the sake of the purity of the church. And we apply then that separation. Yes, we live a wholly separated life, but I don't separate from lost sinners because they're the ones that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But if it's a born-again believer who refuses to live for God and acts like a lost sinner, those are the ones I'm not supposed to have fellowship with. I don't want to be the one that gives cause for this church or the name of Christ to have a bad name. So I trust each of us will make a commitment to purity and to following him. Let us bow forward a prayer.